Ecclesiastes chapter 6. For those of you who are guests, we attempt to journey through one Bible book a year. If you need a Bible to follow along, because you may not have one downloaded on your device, our ushers have one to, for you to follow along this morning. If you just slip up your hand, we'll be glad to uh, give you one. I'm sure you have one at home, or maybe forgot that at home or in the car. We'd like to have you follow along this morning. We're going through the book of Ecclesiastes. This is called Wisdom Literature in the Bible. And these are words that are preserved for our learning in relationship to how to live life and to live what life as wisely as we can. And, uh, so that's what we do. We uh, study God's word one book at a time. Uh, this particular book is a book of wisdom. And uh, we're just in the sixth chapter and hope to conclude it. Uh, by the end of the year. I will tell you because of uh, the Lord's Supper this morning, I was telling my wife last night and uh, on the way to church again this morning, I was really, really struggling because I have this like huge burden to get this whole message off my chest because I don't want to bear that burden for another week, but I don't think I'm going to make it. Uh, in other words, time-wise. <laughs> um, I always seek to let you out uh, on time because I respect God's time that he's given you. And uh, so I'm going to try to cover as absolutely as much as I can here in just 30 minutes. Uh, but please um, come on back next week so that you can get the conclusion um, of what we begin uh, today. Last week we discussed wisdom's address to government and Finance or bureaucracy and money. And we learn that governments have been allowed by God. And we're to learn as believers how to live our eternal purpose within these nations, municipalities that God sets up. And while we seek to be light under these authorities, on our local state or federal level. We are always praying as God's people, regardless of what country or city that we live in or under, how we can be eternal light in that environment. There's nothing special about the United States of America uh, other than the fact that we know God set her up. But he set up Iran too. He allowed it. God's overseeing all of it, whether we feel that the nation stands for more vice than virtue or not. Believers in Iran, believers in China, believers in the United States still live with an eternal purpose in heart and mind. Regardless where they're at, they're trying to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Regardless, again, of the government or city which they find themselves living we looked at wealth, and we realized that any degree of wealth is from God. Whether you be a hundred heir, a thousand heir, a millionaire, or a billionaire. All of it's a gift from God. And it's to be enjoyed. But with eternal purpose. No matter where you travel, no matter what the degree of your wealth allows you to enjoy, in things or places. Always remember 
We do that with eternal purpose. Doctors told my wife, because of her health condition, that if I loved her, I would need to get her south for a few weeks during the course of the winter. I've told you this, folks, before. If we have to do that, which I don't do half as faithfully as I ought to, um, if we go down there, whether it be regardless of the time period, for the good of her health, and some have to travel to different places during the course of the winter because of emotional health, too. Um, there's something that we'll find out later in the book of Ecclesiastes that the S-U-N does that's very therapeutic for people biologically and psychologically. But even if we have to do that, we never lose the reality of what we're to be involved with regarding eternal purpose right in our local church here in Mentor. That whether we exist under a government or whether we exist with any particular degree of wealth, we always live with eternal purpose in mind. And what does that mean? Yes, we live in light of the Lord's return. Jesus is coming again, maybe today. But we also live with his eternal mission at play. What has he called us? He's called you and me to go into the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples. We go with the lips of Jesus, the words of Jesus and his name on our lips as we seek to be light in our culture, no matter where you're at in Lake County or beyond. That's what we do. Solomon goes on here to talk about another particular angle of what it means to have wealth and seem to have everything but have nothing at the same time. We get into chapter 6, and that's why your Sunday morning program says in the first six verses here, we're going to be talking about wealth and eternal purpose. Wealth and eternal purpose. What is it? For someone to have everything and nothing at the same time. Someone to have everything but no eternal purpose at the same time is to have everything and nothing at the same time. Let's read these first six verses together and then we'll get as far as we can this morning. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun and it is prevalent among men. So it's just common, right? That's what the verse says. It's dark, but it's common. It's sad, but it's popular. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years. Scenario number two here. However many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with the good things and he does not even have a proper burial. Then I say, better the miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity. And its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a, a thousand years, 
twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. The next major section of our book study is chapter 6, where we begin this morning, verse 1, through chapter 8 and verse 15. So in order to properly uh, maintenance our minds and our hearts going forward, I think it's good for us to give a little bit of a breakdown of what the next several chapters look like. Okay. So chapter 6, verses, verse 1 to chapter 8 and verse 15. It really is, folks, the application of the first two major sections of the book of Ecclesiastes that we've already preached through, with the second conclusion of the second major section being the end of chapter 5 we looked at last week. Many would say that we're out of the taller weeds of chapter 4 and 5, and now we're journeying into some shorter roughage, but it can still be a difficult go in understanding, but we're going to Fear the Lord and, and know wisdom here, and uh, I promise you that uh, you will come out uh, more joyful than the text sounds <laughs> this morning. Right. The next three chapters will teach us how to navigate life, even though we may feel from time to time that life may include some what I call divine inequalities or God's just not fair. In other words, how do we still do what chapters 1 through 5 challenges to do, which is enjoy God and all the gifts that he's given us as we live with eternal purpose and still persevere when we think God might not be fair in, over, in how he oversees you or your life. Kaiser develops these next four chapters, these next three chapters this way, chapters 6 through verse 15 of chapter 7 and he discusses evaluating men's outward fortune and that evaluation helps him understand these apparent injustices of God. Evaluating fortune helps him understand the apparent injustices of God. In chapter 7 verse 16 through verse 29 he says we have an evaluation here of man's character, not just man's fortune, but man's character. And an evaluation of that will help us better understand apparent unfairness. Notice I say apparent all the time, because God's never unjust. <laughs> These are apparent. And then chapter 8, verses 1 to 14, is really the discussion of the removal of a large proportion of the apparent Unjustices in divine providence as it comes to government. But he concludes in chapter 8 and verse 15. Uh, this next section, if you'll go with me there to verse 15 of chapter 8, he says, So I commended pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except that he eat and drink and be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout all of these apparent injustices. These will still stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. So here you see the apparent paradox of Solomon's wisdom. Enjoy pleasure, which we know is a gift from God, while you navigate through the toil in life which also can be providentially orchestrated by God. 
This is what I call a big picture approach to life. Our tendency, my tendency, is to evaluate the whole of my life by a handful of hard to understand circumstances that God allowed to invade my own personal space. And this is our tendency, isn't it? Because we are fallen, our natures often refocus on the darkness of our pasts. It remains forever a spiritual discipline for us to practice what Solomon teaches us to do at the end of the first three sections of this book. Eat, enjoy, live. Enjoy, eat some more, live, and then live, and then and live as long as you're what? Understanding that these are all gifts to God, gifts from God. And you're living according to his eternal purpose, according to his commandments. We used to sing a Sunday school song that was good for us even as little kids. Count your many blessings, right? Name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. I think it'd be really neat if we sung that together sometime. Because that is in song, the mental discipline of what really Solomon's doing at the end of the first three major sections of this book, and he'll do it again at the end of the fourth. I wrote here in the cross-reference to this text in the margin of my Bible, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, where Paul tells us, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there's any excellence and if there's any worthy praise, make sure you keep thinking about those things. On vacation, our children always ask us, Mom and Dad, are we almost there yet? Right? Once my dad taught me how the mile markers worked on freeways. You know, those green rectangular signs that we see pass by us, or we pass by them every five to 10 miles. I always wondered what they were. He taught me, and then instead of a trip becoming an agonizing long journey for us, those signs actually became quite a blessing. And really, folks, the ending of the first major sections of Ecclesiastes must remain the mile markers of our glorious Christian experience in our fallen world. We have to wrestle our minds back to who God is, what he's given, and how we're supposed to use who he is and what he's given as we live this journey. We will lose our spiritual GPS, if you will, if we don't keep doing that. So, Lord, are we almost there? This one's tough. But, Lord, I know you've given me in the past, and I know what you've given me today, and I'm assuming that you're going to keep giving me these things in the future, and I need to recount my blessings in the meantime as I await the joys and pleasures of your good hand. If you're given to melancholy like I am, often we feel the need to focus again on these divine inequities. We allow them to consume us at the expense of even being able to see the good things from the hand of God that are all around us. And we actually begin to believe our own lie. That the darkness around us does far super succeed, succeed the goodness of God around us. 
And it's just really never true. It's like just never really true, especially for a believer. So I want to make sure that we endure through this section of Ecclesiastes as we have the others. We know what chapter 3 has always taught us, or already taught us, that two is better than one and a threefold cord is hardly broken. And so when we go through uh, this particular passage of wisdom, uh, we understand that we shouldn't even go through this alone. I think Satan can use our inability to fully know the plan of God for our lives to really wreck our lives. Are you following me? God can use our inability to fully know the plan of God for our lives to actually wreck our lives. That's why we have to go through these things that we believe are unfair with somebody. We, we can't go through this alone. The first good gifts God puts around us are people. Right here in our own local church. And God will not allow even what we don't understand about him to dominate you if you allow those believers in your home, in your local church home, to help you navigate through these choppy waters. Just think of the, again of the passage, the passages that saturate the New Testament that teach us how to consider each other as those gift agents from God. We, we all need an assist from time to time, even if we're struggling as to why God allowed something into our lives that we just cannot comprehend at all. We always need someone we can ask. Are we there yet? Help me recognize God's mile markers here. Help me wrestle back to the conclusion of all four sections of the book of Ecclesiastes. Help me go there. I can't get there by myself. I was watching a true documentary of a group of friends stranded at sea for 40 days. Unfortunately, a couple of them had passed away from dehydration and other natural causes, and two remained. They, they strove to keep their minds intact because the dehydration was muscling them to hallucinate about seeing fresh water and even land that didn't even exist. They keep each other alive by rehearsing over and again the pleasure-filled mile markers of their past and the good gifts like a cold drink, a, a lobster tail and steak and seeing family and friends and sleeping in an air-conditioned home that awaited them if they were just to be rescued today. That's how they survived. And as believers, we need to gird up the loins of our minds and help each other do the same thing as we walk through what seems to be a very real desert of not being able to figure out what God's doing in our lives at times. Can't go this alone. We need to always help remind each other that our small stories are written by God, but he is writing a much bigger story than all of us. And it's a good story. And it is a story that ultimately triumphs over all evil. I'll tell you what, I was 
forced to read Shakespeare in high school and college. But I was glad I was forced to read Shakespeare. If for no other reason that it had seemed that the good guy ultimately won over the bad guy. Yeah, there were some casualties along the way. But good triumphs over evil. And this is really the story of the Bible. Sin has affected everything. And that includes you and me. It's affected us in some pretty dark ways inside of ourselves and even victims of others outside of ourselves. But we help each other keep our gaze on the ultimate good triumphing over evil. I will tell every one of you and mark it down. You all need to go back and listen to Pastor Hobie's sermon from last Sunday night. We've been journeying through the book of Isaiah and Pastor Kent recounted the realities of Christ's kingdom to come. You all need to listen to that. You can find it online. The big story of our God and his ultimate triumph, the coming reality for enjoyment and pleasure, we all help each other long for that perfect day to come. And even the contemplation and the discussion of the Lord's imminent return, let alone his kingdom, right, keeps us comforted and keeps us encouraged because we can never avoid what God's allowing for our good that we can simply sometimes never understand. So are we there yet? Well, if the Lord comes today, we're only 84 months away from that kingdom. And that's pretty exciting. Walter Kaiser says this, the gifts of God are not dangled on a string before men's eyes only to be retracted just as they seem to come within reach. The promise is that in the good plan of God, they will accompany men who fear him. God really intended that men should come to a proper enjoyment of the good material gifts placed in this world by him and that the gifts should be a source of constant satisfaction when the things and the users are properly related to the giver of those gifts himself. There is always something good to enjoy from God right around us, but that which is dark that happens to us or may be within us often distracts us away from contemplating that regular stream of good things that never stops in our lives. So it's a scriptural discipline that is required of the Christian as we navigate the waters of apparent injustice. Always keeping in mind the mile markers of chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, chapter 8 and verse 15. But we do this together. So we want to consider here the first apparent divine inequity or a particular way that it seems God is unfair that Solomon has for us here. Do you ever feel life could be described as a dead-end street? Have you ever thought yours was? I've been out to a particular church in Arizona twice, and I've put the address in my GPS. And I have never found that church without help outside my GPS, both times. I have been led to many dead-end streets trying to get to that church. The last time I went, I was this shy of being late for the service because I was at a dead-end street, actually, which included a fence 
and there was a cow behind that fence staring me right through the windshield. I'm looking at a cow and I'm supposed to be preaching in five minutes. Right? Solomon says here in the first description of two different kinds of men or people in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, that their lives seem to be an apparent injustice or a dead end. And I think it's good for us to understand what wisdom has to say about how we are supposed to handle apparent dead ends in our lives. Solomon uses various expressions even within the book that we've studied already that would be described as maybe dead-end streets. Life is futile, right? Life is a mist. It's a vapor. Life is meaningless, or, or it's like chasing after the wind. Or you might say a cat chasing its tail or whatnot. We may use words or phrases that would describe hopelessness. We might say, wow, this is like trying to empty Lake Erie with a tablespoon. Or this is like trying to carry water in a sieve. This is as futile as plowing rocks. Or we might say this is as useless as pounding water with a mortar. Warren Wearsby quotes the hymn writer William Cooper and his lyric. And he writes the toil of dropping buckets into empty wells and growing old and drawing nothing up. He goes on to say, if Cooper was alive today, he may write as futile as blind men driving cars down crowded dead-end streets. Has life ever appeared to be a dead-end street for you? And at that point, you just can't see God's point? What are some of the dead-end streets that we experience? Maybe you've been educated for a specific job, and you've had a lot of interviews, and you can't land that job for which you were educated. Maybe you were pursuing a professional sports career, and it suddenly ends short of the pros with like little to no explanation. Maybe you have an illness and you've tried multiple medications and multiple doctors and nothing's changing the spread of the disease. The harder you study for a test in school on a certain subject, you keep getting the same grade. When I was in high school, my history teacher, Tom Spence, told me that I was the acid test for him, whether he gave a good test or not. 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, I had them all four years, and the average I got on his test every single time was an 86%. Right? I'd studied, 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 study. There were a lot of brainiacs sitting next to me that never studied and always got hundreds. Right? I'd studied 86%. He would start handing back my tests as a junior or senior, and he said, you don't need to look at it. <laughs> Same grade. Appreciate it. I still know I'm giving a good test. I don't know what that meant. But that was, history to me was a dead-end street, no matter how hard I tried. Although I still like history. You might say I've been in my company for a long time and applied for the same management position. One step up. I get to the final interview. It's between me and another employee, and all those times someone else gets selected. So I've actually put together a plan while I'm working to make the company more money and it's bulletproof in every way. And every time I share it with upper-level management, this has happened in our congregation as I'm writing these things, I'm thinking of people. They just don't ever listen. We get up close and 
man, they just never seem to buy in. I've been trying to love and help a friend, Christian or not, out of the spiritual ditch that they're in. I, I've tried and I've tried. I've prayed and I've prayed and I've wept and I've wept and, and nothing seems to be happening. This is, just seems to be a, a dead end. I've done everything I can to try to make wise investments. I've built a healthy portfolio and then, boy, 2008 hits. Wow, it's gone. I've tried to make this marriage work. I tried everything. I, I just can't do this anymore. They, they just don't love me. This is, this is a dead end. My, cash, my pastor keeps wearing that one drop-dead ugly tie. No matter how many times I try to convince him never to wear it again because it doesn't look good on live stream. He just keeps wearing it. Right? This is a dead-end street. And it's not this tie, if you're wondering. Amen. Solomon has some wisdom for us today. For most of you who have been diving into enjoying life, and enjoying life in what I call a great commission way, I don't think you struggle with this discouragement much anymore because you know more and more your ultimate purpose in life and temporary achievements and accomplishments fade in comparison to the value of living with eternal purpose. But there are still some who feel that life is just a dead end we all can help them get back to realizing and understanding the purpose for these mile markers in their spiritual journeys and help them reorient back to learning what a life supported by God's grace is in perseverance. And don't forget, even those who Paul called strong in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14 are still tempted to view certain things in life as dead ends. Even the strongest in the room can get defeated and feel life or the pursuit of one particular thing in life is no longer worth it. And God is really unfair. Now my friends, the Bible tells me that every one of us in this room has struggled with that at least one time. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. I have stood with you next to your children who are on gurneys, home with the Lord, in trauma rooms. And it comes to your mind, what in the world? Children shouldn't die before their parents. I've stood with you as you held your stillborn babies. We've buried babies together. I've stood with some of you and all of us pastors considered an honor to do so because you've stood with us at times when life didn't make sense at all. I remember when my sister and my brother walked away from God for years. And I remember living in that home. And as the pastor of this church, the agony that was in that home, we thought that they thought that they had done everything just as they were taught in the Word of God to do, and yet when they step outside the home, 
You walked our former pastor through giving his own resignation at that point, and you told him no. We're going to walk with you through this. Some of you that have been here for 25 years or more, you remember those days. There is no temptation taking you but such as is human. And we come to these apparent dead ends. We need to realize that Moses did, Elijah did, Job did, Jeremiah did, Jonah did, and even Paul did, didn't he? And wow, even Jesus was tempted without sin. And who did he need with him in Matthew 26? He needed his chosen ones with him. None of us should go through these apparent injustices or inadequacies or however you define it in life alone as we journey through by God's grace learning what all this means. A wise man once said, perhaps the basic problem in life confronts us with too many mysteries we can't fathom and too many puzzles we can't solve. For this life to be truly satisfying, it has to make sense to us. When it doesn't make sense, we get frustrated. And if people can't see through the purpose in life, especially when they go through the deep suffering, they start to question God and even wonder if their own life has been worthwhile. Solomon offers wisdom here to all of us as we journey through life and enjoy its good gifts and its blessings and live with eternal purpose, and yet we're still tempted to get stuck at some dead ends. And I hope this wisdom you will find wonderfully satisfying to us as we all gather next week to look at it. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the promise that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And those who know your wisdom will be joyful people. We understand, Lord, what we need to look forward to in the future. We understand what we're commanded to enjoy here at the end of the first three major sections. But in the meantime, Lord, there's some tough things we go through. We recognize your grace is capable to help us, and we recognize the people around us that are capable to help us through these things. Help us, Lord, to also enjoy. You've got a third layer of help, which is your word and wisdom through your word as we walk together by your grace. So help us. As we consider even next week, the the first apparent injustice. How can God be fair when he's given so much, and yet it seems a life is so empty, without purpose? How can God do this? Well, help us to understand your wisdom as we gather next week. And prepare our hearts in the meantime to do so with integrity, which means doing so in a spirit-filled way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.